Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Wednesday, September the 7th from a very hot San Francisco. Oh, uh, it rarely gets seriously hot in San Francisco, but California is in the midst, in the grip of a horrible heat wave. Um, when you look at the numbers, um, up in the hundreds, uh, Sacramento, I think, was 120. It could be worse. We could be in Pakistan. A third of Pakistan now is underwater. Looks like a sea, according to their prime minister. Uh, many villagers trapped and many people drowning. We had a show uh, last uh, earlier this week with Bill McGuire, very distinguished, credible environmentalist who says that we've only got 90 months left to save the planet unless we very seriously address these issues. He's, he argues in his new book, Hot House Earth, an inhabitant's guide. We're pretty much done with the earth. Uh, well, you know what they say about the rats. Uh, they are fleeing the sinking ship, at least according to my old friend and guest today, Doug Rushkoff, who is one of tech's most insightful, most prescient, and most articulate writers and critics. He has a new book out, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. And Doug is joining us from his home. Doug, welcome, as always. Great to see you. Great to see you. I'm finally so, uh, my, come uh, around. I've come around to the keen to the keen way. <laughs> well, Doug, is 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 the rats metaphor? I know it's not very original, but is it appropriate for your survival of the richest, given that the earth seems, and I can use this word because it's my own show, fucked. Well, it's appropriate, except for the fact that the rats that jump off the ship often survive. Um, <laughs> the 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 tech billionaires who think they can somehow you know escape or insulate themselves from the the catastrophes of their own making are going to be surprised by the fact that these these uh, uh, escape visions really are just fantasies. You can't you can't go to Mars. You can't go to New Zealand. You can't go seasteading. Uh, it, it's coming for everyone. The one place you can go, I guess, is the um is the metaverse, which is ironic, uh, given that uh, uh, it's become a big thing. Mark Zuckerberg, maybe not ironic, maybe appropriate. Tell me the story, though, of, of this new book, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. You've written so many books. Um, this book is slightly different from the typical Rushkoff text, perhaps less theory, more of a narrative. Tell me about the book, its background, and what you're trying to say. It's just out today, so congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, it's funny. I, I had this thing happen to me that I put in the bottom of a piece that was about, uh, it was really about about this kind of a, a Silicon Valley mindset that I've been concerned about, this, this kind of metaverse idea that everybody's leveling up like zero to one, trying to rise one order of magnitude above everything. And at the very end of the piece, I put in this weird thing that had happened to me when I went to give a talk for these uh, uh, tech investors, and it turned out to be just five billionaires who were brought 
into the green room rather than taking me out on the stage. And they sat around this table and started asking me for all of these. Did you know who they were? Are they well-known characters? Um, one of them's kind of well-known, but they're not the billionaires that we, we see in our Twitter feeds. You know, they're not on Shark Tank. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, it was funny because I asked them, they, they were asking me, you know, how do they survive the apocalypse? You know, should they go to New Zealand or Alaska? You know, and, and is their bunker strategy working? And how do we maintain control of our security force after the event? And I was asking them, I said, I thought you guys have rocket ships and stuff like that. And they said, oh, no, we're, we're low-level billionaires. <laughs> that's that's mm. Branson Musk level. They're getting off. The best we can get is a seat on one of their rockets. We can't, we can't afford a space program. So it was kind of funny. So they're, they're low-level. They're more like hedge fund, hedge fund guys. And they're, you know, they, they did their uh, almost like their insurance uh, uh, calculations and their advisors told them there's a 20% chance of a major, you know, uh, uh, civilization ending cataclysm so that they should invest 20% of their money in, you know, a plan B. And that's what they were talking to me about. This was pre-COVID, right? This was pre-COVID. Yeah. And I was just like, my God, you know, they, they, I called it the insulation equation that they, they want to earn enough money so they can escape the planet that they're destroying by earning money in that way. You know, it was these, these people that believe that with enough money and enough technology, they can somehow outrun the externalities of their own activities. And then when COVID happened, I started to realize that a lot of us, um, have this tendency, you know, when push comes to shove, there's like a week or two when we're all like in good spirits and helping each other. And then a lot of those Amazon video doorbells go up. I start seeing more DoorDash and fresh direct deliveries and everyone has their Amazon prime. And it kept making me wonder, is this what we do under pressure that we cocoon into these little safe digital bubbles? Or is this more an excuse to live the way that we've been wanting to live all along. I mean, I always had Amazon Prime. I just felt guilty about having it. And then when COVID comes around, I'm like, well, actually, it's kind of kind of glad I have this because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting things sooner, you know, but it, it, so it's hard to say. But COVID definitely. So you're funding Jeff Bezos' um, race into space. His yeah. race. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's funny. I'm sitting here. With uh, this is the thermos I got from uh, this is the thermos I got when I was a kid after the moon landing. See, they're on the moon, you know. And I remember Jeff Bezos got back from his race to space, and um, I was watching it on MSNBC. And Stephanie Rule, who's a newscaster I usually like, she's like going weak need interviewing him after this amazing achievement, and so so excited. And I'm thinking, what did this man really achieve, right? What are we celebrating? What we're celebrating is that one man has enough money to do what we did to do less than we could do collectively 60 years ago. So he how does this, you know, I've given some thought, I've written some stuff on the Bezos Musk privatized initiative to go into space versus NASA. You've done a lot of thinking on this mm. front. Does it reflect the triumph of neoliberalism, even if some people, and we've had guests on the show, believe we're at the end of the neoliberal age, but it might only be the beginning. Well, we've certainly witnessed the, the conquest by the neoliberal age. You know, the, the triumph will be a triumph of individuals, though 
over everybody. It's not that individuals will save our planet or save our civilization if there's a if they win by definition for them winning means rising above and separating from the rest it's what peter theo means when he says we can go from zero to one that you could be an order of magnitude above or what o'reilly meant by web two you know you don't compete down on the ground you aggregate the people who are competing or what Stuart brand meant when he said you know we we are as gods and may as well start acting like it so everybody is trying to get one level above mere mortals and kind of act like emperors like um mark zuckerberg sees himself uh, modeling himself after augustus caesar which i mean better than caligula but still not <laughs> not a very good right. model yeah, I don't think um, I don't think Zuckerberg has the the haircut to be Caligula. He needs he needs perhaps to go to the barber if he wants to be. Yeah, Caligula. no, that's the Augustus. It is legally. I mean, that's he does admit that it's the Augustus haircut that he got there. So he's 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 going for it. Um, are Musk and Teal? You you write about them. We've all written about Musk and Teal. Are they? The guys, and they, of course, worked together. They were the co-founders of PayPal. Are they the guys who have captured the spirit of the of our age of the survival of the richest, Doug, better than anyone else? Do they personify in psychological, ideological terms what's gone wrong? I mean, I think they do, although even they are not exactly alike. You know, Musk, I put on sort of more on the, the Steve Bannon QAnon side of the equation. Although I guess Teal is there too. You know, the, the, the issue I have with them is that they are, they are both in one way or another, what you would call an accelerationist, you know, which is an idea that came out of a, a science fiction novel, but it's the Steve Bannon idea that this civilization is hopelessly corrupt. So we should do whatever is necessary to bring it to its end, to just stoke the fire. So if that means diluting a few million people into these QAnon fantasies so that they attack and go not, then so be it. You know, it's this sort of cynical um, uh, churning up of, of social unrest and I mean, just burn it all down. You know, it's a scorched earth look because they so desperately want to get to game B, you know, to, to, to the second plan. They want to clear cut this civilization so they can build the next one, whether it's Peter Thiel doing it out, you know, seasteading out on the ocean or, or um, you know, uh, Bannon doing it, I guess, right here uh, in Yeah, we, we've uh, done a number of shows on, on Bannon, on his fetishization. You know, when it comes to Thiel, of course, he, he loves or fetishizes Lord of the Rings. One of the, you wrote a really interesting piece in The Guardian in association with the new book, um, uh, you talk about the mindset, the apocalyptic mindset, and, and, and you say it's like the plot of a, Mar a Marvel blockbuster. You've got a teenage daughter, so I'm sure you've been dragged to a lot of superhero movies as I have. Has the world finally caught up to Hollywood in terms of this whole narrative of the survival of the richest being like a superhero movie, being as if it's been scripted by Marvel? It's funny. It's that... That superhero narrative, that Aristotelian narrative is what got me involved in the internet in the first place. I was a, I was a theater director in the 80s and got so tired of this kind of crisis climax relief, you know, this Aristotelian arc where everything 
ends, it seemed like a kind of an inappropriate story structure for a world that was moving into hopefully more sustainable outlooks. That's what got me involved in this stuff in the first place, because it was such a choose your own adventure, hypertext, fantasy role playing game, kind of never ending game, an infinite game, as, as James Kars would put it. But once it dovetailed with big business, you know, big business is all depending on the exit strategy. You need a sellable event so you can get out. And when you have a, a society that is based in the Marvel blockbuster ending uh, uh, religion that's based in an apocalypse and an Armageddon and a business landscape building technologies that are all dependent on an exit strategy. I mean, it's no wonder that these guys model of, of the world is one where we're going to need an exit from that too, that it can't just go on in order for me to really win as only a billionaire or trillionaire can, I've got to exit from the whole thing. You've written a lot of books, um, Doug, uh, probably more than, than any tech writer or serious tech writer. Your last book, and you were on the show, uh, was Team Human. Um, how does um, Survival of the Richest, how is it the next chapter in your own particular narrative, your own coverage? Uh, I just read uh, Klosterman's The 90s. And you were the tech, and Klosterman's a smart guy, and, and, mm -hmm. and he gets culture, I think, as well as anyone, certainly the 90s. You were the one in the 90s who he picks as the sort of the voice of tech hope, tech optimism. Obviously, you've changed, as you suggested, over the last 30 years. But I, I'm curious as to your sense of your own narrative. How does survival of the richest fit in? Well, it's interesting. In some ways, I would, I would... Survival of the Richest is the book I would write almost before Team Human, because Team Human is saying, look, you don't go alone. Any technology that's making that's isolating you or separating you or making you think you need to win as a as a personal victory is the problem. And what you want to do instead is embrace the other, find the others, you know, do things in community and cooperatives and and together, you know, Team Human is arguing that being human is a team sport. So it's the lesson that these tech bros need to hear. But the what what freed me to write this book now is the fact that it's finally I'm writing in stories. I'm writing about these real experiences I had. It ends up being kind of an inoculation. It's really it's a black comedy. These men are hilarious, you know, to, to be in a room with me at, you know, when I'm 29 in a room with Richard Dawkins and he's telling me there's no soul, there's no spirit, you know, yelling at me that I'm a moralist and to have lived long enough to have this scientist, this, 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 you know, a staunch atheistic, uh, um, um, scientistic, uh, man with tremendous hubris teasing me for being a moralist to live long enough to see him in a picture on, you know, the Lolita Express owned by Jeffrey Epstein and and to be able to laugh at the way his amoral kind of uh, uh, scientific philosophy dovetailed so well with Jeffrey Epstein's need to, you know, spawn, you know, the, his his genome you know, throughout the rest of the planet um, is good. In terms of my own trajectory, honestly, it was I was finishing my very first book on cyberculture, this book, Siberia. I was finishing it in 1993 after it had gotten canceled by Bantam because they thought the internet would be over before it came out. So I was working on a rewrite in 1993 before I, I put it out with Harper. And 
Wired magazine had just begun. And I saw at the very end of the book, I wrote, you know, there's this great trajectory we're all imagining of these technologies uh, unleashing the collective human imagination as nothing before. But there's another movement coming, right? Trying to recast and reframe these technologies as the salvation for the NASDAQ stock exchange, as a way to just extract money from people and to build what we called sticky websites in order to get people's attention. If we don't watch out, they could very easily move the internet from the culture pages to the business pages and we will, this window of opportunity will close. So even from then, from 93, I was already saying, watch out. You know, and by 99, when, when the New York Times asked me to write the, the op-ed on the AOL Time Warner merger, I said, this means the collapse is coming. This means the dot-com crash is coming. The glory days are certainly over if AOL is cashing in its chips for a real company. So I was, I was both really hopeful for what this could do in the same way that I would have been hopeful for the printing press or writing or spoken language to unleash new possibilities. And still right now disappointed that the leaders of this industry are really um, have given up on our civilization and see us really as something to leave behind, not foster forward. Doug, when I, I think I made the, the slip earlier, when one thinks of survival of the richest, one of course thinks of Darwin's survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I may have mistakenly called your book survival of the fittest. Is there a Darwinian element? A si I mean, I, I understand it's a comedy. Uh, it's a satire of the, dim-wittedness of our billionaire overlords, uh, tech billionaire overlords, financial billionaire overlords. But is there a Darwinian element here? Uh, I, I mean, when, when everyone, when everything quite literally, as seems to be happening in California and Pakistan, goes up in smoke, um, are these people actually going to survive better than others? I know uh, you, you look at the real estate, for example, for the apocalypse. Um, you do some research and writing on this. Are, are they going to be able to escape the apocalypse, these people? Um, no. I mean, first off, this is not what Darwin wrote about. You know, this is a bastardization of Darwin by a, a, a group of libertarians who've managed to reframe his, his writing. What Darwin was writing about was the way that species collaborate and cooperate in order to ensure mutual survival. It was an ecosystem he was talking about, not an economy, right? It's not as environmentalism was not a zero sum game, not even for Darwin. You know, survival of the of the fittest was uh, uh, one small portion of, of a book that if you look page after page, it's look how these ones cooperate with those ones and these ones cooperate with those ones. And how, you know, we know that trees are not competing for resources. They share resources under the ground through a network of mycelia that take a service charge for moving things. When trees don't have enough, they decide which one is going to go. They kind of do it collaboratively and they, 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 they establish consensus on which tree is going to sacrifice itself and give its nutrients to the others. It's not, uh, that's not a, a, a battle, right? What these guys have done is they've misinterpreted Darwin just as they misinterpreted Adam Smith to think that he was a free market libertarian when he was actually talking about land, labor, and capital. He sounds like a Marxist if you read, uh, uh, if you read Adam Smith today, not a libertarian, but anything to not cooperate. So they're under the illusion 
by misinterpreting Darwin, misinterpreting Adam Smith, misinterpreting pretty much everything, misinterpreting even Jane Jacobs um, as 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 the survival of the fittest individual. So they want to do whatever is necessary to to ensure their own personal survival in a what in a bomb shelter the germs are going to get in in a on a on a on a in an encampment that they're going to defend against the motorcycle gangs on a on a planet that's going to have nuclear waste and and mass migrations and it does not it does not work this where this is the bomb shelter right we're on the whole planet is the escape shelter this is the bunker you know we're all in it together and if they can't get that you know they're there and well they can't um so we need to move on without them rather than emulating these these foolhardy idiots um we need to get together and just on the ground and start helping out each other's neighbors and not believe that one man on blue origin going to space is actually what we want to emulate what about the, the, the space plan? Uh, Musk's company SpaceX has a proposal for a Mars colony. Uh, all these people seem to be obsessed with colonizing space. Is there anything in it, Doug? Is it conceivable or anything? is it just pure fantasy? There's anything in it. I mean, right now it's uh, made possible by our willingness to burn off tremendous amounts of fossil fuel, you know, a, a, a of our, our remaining reserve of, you know, dead organisms, you know, if we're willing to try to, you know, burn them up to get a few people somewhere really far away, you know, um, gig is in, you know, good luck with that. But it certainly will be harder to colonize Mars um, than it would be to colonize even a dis climate disaster Earth. I mean, I'd rather be in a post-apocalyptic Earth than Venus. You know, if I'm if I'm trying to get by, I'll eat bark and bugs. You know, whatever I can here under the acid rain, rather than just frying on the in the poison toxic clouds of Venus. Um, it's it's a sweet thing, and if there's time and energy, I don't mind people thinking about, oh, could we ever starseed space? But what I do mind is when I hear people like Elon Musk saying there's going to soon be or a thousand years from now, there will be trillions of people in space. And we have to realize that their happiness is more important than the welfare of this mere 8 billion people right now. So they take an ends justifies the means approach. It's OK to suffer now for this greater thing that's going to happen in the future? No, I don't buy that. I think if you're not doing it in the moment, if you're not doing it right now, then you're not doing it. These, these, these ends justifies the means justification for externalizing harm don't work. You know, the, the, just now, I just read, you know, our, our friend Cory Doctorow wrote this piece about Epson printers and how they are programmed, a certain model, they're programmed to brick, to lock themselves up after a certain number of pages. And the company says to, to people who ask that it's because there's a sponge that might fill up and eventually it could damage your desk. You know, rather than giving you the ability to change this little sponge that sops up the extra ink, they brick your machine so you've got to throw it on a toxic waste dump and then drag more minerals out of the ground to make another one. Now, who's making that decision? The person making that decision is someone who knows climate change. They've seen Inconvenient Truth. They know what they're doing, but they think somehow they can make enough money through this sick transaction, through this sick planned obsolescence. They can make enough money to escape 
the, the pollution and problems that they're creating by selling things in that way. And that's the fallacy. You can't make a car that drives fast enough to escape from its own exhaust. Eventually, you'll, you'll get right back in it again. So, Doug, where, where do we go now? We've given up on tech. Um, I, I've done a number of shows about the rethinking, I guess, of our species, one with the Atlantic uh, writer Ed Yong has an mm -hmm. interesting book on an immense world, how animal senses reveal the hidden realms about us, is about how we can learn empathy from animals. Another book recently, a very interesting book on human stupidity by uh, Justin Gregg called If Nietzsche Was a Narwhal. Mm. Is, is the way we need to go just simply rethinking ourselves, our species? We, yeah. we you know, Tech didn't work out so well. You, you've followed that like me over the last 30 years. We believed in it. Now we no longer believe in it. What do we do next? Well, I still believe in it. I just believe we're not deploying it properly. You know, tech in the service of extractive capital colonialism will yield a lot of capital colonialism. But it's like Web3 is just you know, when you hear the Web3 stuff, it's just a repeat of Web2, really. I mean, O'Reilly yeah. uh, says that. Most people say it. I mean, leaving aside the possibility, yeah. well, let's end then. You, so you still have a, an inkling of faith in tech to save us? Or at least to... Not to save us. Not to save us. To make, at least to address these problems profound problems, at least to address the apocalypse or the impending apocalypse? Well, yes, but um, I believe in tech and I believe in degrowth. So I don't believe in sort of a sudden, rapid, decade-long Green New Deal where we transition everything to solar and electric and replace all our cars because the amount of stuff you have to dig out of the ground to build all that renewable technology would kill us all really fast. The, the only real solution is degrowth. We start doing a heck of a lot less until we can develop better, higher tech, lower impact ways of doing things. So we can't all fly around the planet like this. We can't do it. Too much jet fuel, bad, right? So we've got to figure out what does that mean? Can we somehow live? Can we somehow agree to live in a world where people take two international trips in their lifetime. You like get one after high school maybe before you go to college or a career, and then maybe you get another one when you retire. And other than that, stick around, take trains. And we do that until Elon or someone develops a nice drone, you know, helium dirigible. Yeah, that's you all know? very well. It's not going to happen. Who's going to who's going to insist on that? How's it going to get well, either, it's unimaginable in America. Can well, you then we either do stuff like that voluntarily, because when we do stuff like that, we get laid more, we get better food. I mean, I remember when I had a, a I joined a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, and served a salad. My mom is gone now. She came over for dinner. She ate the salad and she said, this is weird. This salad tastes like it did when I was a little girl, right? Because she hadn't eaten a real salad on real soil you know, for the yeah. last 50 years. Well, this is um, the Mombiat. We had George Mombiat, you know, with his arguments about regenesis. But so, so let's end. If uh, we don't you've do written a lot about content. Do we need, if we don't we need do it to voluntarily, get the it's going to happen anyway. You're going to do it involuntarily. And it's going to be a lot less fun that way. But we're going to go there either way. 
So you're in the Jack, the Tim Jackson camp, so many other writers. We've got to get beyond capitalism then. And tech can help us do that. It could. It could. Not if we go with Bitcoin. Not if we decide. I mean, Bitcoin is the purest example of digital excess, right? We are literally burning the planet as a way of worshiping a symbol system. That's, it, it couldn't be clearer than Bitcoin. We're converting matter into not energy. We're converting matter into, into digits. That's, that's the digital realm sucking up rea what's left of our reality. That's what we have to stop. Well, it's important stuff, and it's great that we got Rushkoff around. And then what we do without him, his new book, uh, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, has gone totally viral and expect it to be a bestseller. You need to help us make it a bestseller. Order it, even on Amazon, but ideally somewhere else. Uh, congratulations, Doc. Oh, I don't quite know how you keep on producing these books, but you are, so you must have hey, some I'm special done. secret, some special... Superpower. Um, what else I'm are you reading, to, Doug, start, these I days? I'm going to start a puppet theater now. I'm done. <laughs> I hope. Well, uh, you, you always say that after every book. We always think that after every book. And then we come back to it. Yeah, what, right. what else are you reading in addition to your own stuff? What else would you, you know, suggest? I'm reading this weird book. Um, this, uh, two of them. Um, this one, Down to Earth by Bruno Latour. I mm. thought he was going to be too hard for me, you know, because it's like Latour really easy and this is like the philosophical version of survival of the richest where he's talking about the difference between sort of the real world and this abstracted world yeah. that we're investing all our time in and so i'm reading that and i'm reading a book called metamorphosis by another guy like that um this one Ul ulrich beck i hadn't heard i'm just so under undereducated in certain ways this guy's really smart, and he's talking kind of about climate change and all, but he's kind of moving up and saying, no, this is a metamorphosis, that we're actually turning it to something else. But, I mean, that's kind of hopeful. It's all good. 